0: Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky.
1: And I am also Rachel Brodsky. No, I'm Aviv Rubenstein.
0: Last week, we dove headfirst into Cruel Intentions on the pivotal final scene featuring Reese Witherspoon, a vintage Jaguar, and The Verves 1997 hit Bittersweet Symphony.
1: And if you haven't listened to that episode, we suggest you go back and do that right now. The story is wild, and it includes blowing 10% of the movie's budget on this one song, and several lawsuits between The Verve's Richard Ashcroft and The Rolling Stones, which kept nearly 20 years of royalties from The Verve.
0: Today, however, we're going to be talking to Jordan Ross Schindler, co-creator of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical, about his love for this film... Adapting the movie for stage and the long-lost pilot for the Cruel Intentions TV reboot starring Sarah Michelle Gellar.
1: Plus, a little bit more about my favorite sync in Cruel Intentions, Placebo's Every You, Every Me.
0: All that and more on this sequel episode of NSYNC.
2: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
0: Do you want to talk about, like, I can get into yeah. pl- placebo yes. uh, opening so, Cruel Intentions?
1: There are certain kind of Gen Xers that will tell you that The Big Chill has the best soundtrack of any movie. The Big Chill being kind of like a beyond the soundtrack, a mediocre film, mediocre to good. Um, and I think that Cruel Intentions is that for our generation, that that the soundtrack lives on far longer than the film itself and specifically for Young Aviv, the opening track of Ever You Ever Me by Placebo like really connected the yeah, hotwired something in my brain.
0: Ever You Every Me opens with Sebastian driving towards New York City. So the two scenes, the first scene and the last scene, um, they mirror each other. The song was released in January of ninety nine. It was the third single from Placebo's second album, Without You, I'm Nothing. And this is like a really tense and hard driving track. And it perfectly sets the stage for meeting Sebastian, who is a jaded. When we meet him, he's like a jaded Upper East Side high school senior. He's got a serious womanizing reputation. Um, And as the song, the lyrics perfectly encapsulate his character by saying, uh, like, there's nothing else to do. My heart's a tart, your body's rent. But at the same time, the song like longs for something real, and like Sebastian, we're led to think has like will and should be redeemed, um, and ultimately he does. But like we're kind of led to see that there's a deep loneliness central to his womanizing and he just basically has an emotional void to fill
1: yeah, with sex this the song has a ton of energy and has this kind of the this jaded point of view of flailing out for something real and coming up with you know sex and substances and ev- everything else and uh, fun fact: This was my introduction to the band Placebo. It started decades long love affair with the band. Placebo is a go to karaoke band for me because I can do a a passable singing impression of their singer Brian Malko.
0: That's awesome. He's got a good like nasal such sneer. a good voice. Yeah, they've got um. I forget what song, what Smith song they covered, but that was a favorite of mine.
1: Um, Big Mouth strikes again. They oh do. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah.
1: they changed Walkman to Discman, and I was like, this is yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah, Placebo has like a covers record. They sang with Bowie. That they, they're a, at the at the risk of doing an entire second episode about Placebo and every you, every me, Moko Placebo, Brian of Placebo is he's openly bisexual. Which was kind of a daring thing for a guy to be in a '90s rock band, um, but it places this glam punk anthem as the perfect opener for the film, whose plot includes Sarah Michelle Gellar gleefully awakening Selma Blair's bisexuality in a kiss that was freeze framed on computer screens across the world
0: <laughs> and awarded at the MTV at the MTV Movie I Awards. Oh, I d-
1: deeply remember they, that they kissed
0: again. <laughs> But to zoom all the way back out, we have a very special guest on the show today, fellow Pennsylvanian Jordan Roth Schindler, co-creator of Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical.
1: He's here to tell us how the movie changed his life and how he was able to change the course of the Cruel Intentions canon. I can't wait. Me neither.
3: We'll be right back.
1: And we're back from commercial with a seamless edit where it seems like nothing has changed. Now we are joined with, the audience will never know, we're wearing the same clothes and everything. <laughs> we're, we're joined by writer, producer, Pennsylvanian, Jordan Ross Schindler, co-creator of Cruel up, Intentions, the musical, the, the 90s musical, the unofficial, the 90s musical yeah. unofficial, official, what was the, what's the name? Tell me the name. So it's
4: Cruel Intentions, the 90s musical. We've had a bunch of different names along the way, but we started very unofficial, and now we are official, official.
1: How about that? How the hell did you create a question mark parody so good that it it became on par with the original?
4: We really tried to stay as far away from the word parody as possible. I understand saying it. Right. um, Because, you know, when, especially in Los Angeles at the time, there were a lot of, you know, stage adaptations of movies being, um, you know, turned into jukebox musicals, kind of guerrilla style. Cruel Intentions of the 90s musical wouldn't exist if I hadn't gone to the Rockwell to see a parody of Scream. Um, and, you know, I was so like inspired by that, that I kind of was like, I want to I want to do something, you know, in in the theater world, but I don't even know where to start.
0: But wait, a parody of a parody, though?
4: Yeah. So, so in many ways, in many ways, it was sort of like them making fun of Scream, even though Scream already makes fun of the genre itself.
0: This is getting into like Inception territory for me
4: meta inside of a meta
0: yeah
4: so i was a theater kid in high school aviv and i went to the same high school you council rock south are you oh, yeah. you're like uh two years above me,
1: two years yeah. above me two i years? graduated in 04 because i'm old okay and jordan we're not,
0: we can be old together that's, no when, I, that's when i graduated oh
1: six because jordan's young we're all old yeah. so two
4: two years young yeah, two years younger so i was a theater kid in high school i was you know i was in choir and you know i I think there was a moment I thought like, oh yeah, you're going to be an actor. Like this is going to be great. And then I got to college and I, you know, sort of was around some of the theater kids and the theater department at Temple University. And I realized, you know, that they just all wanted it so much more than I, than I did. I, I wasn't a performer. And at that, at that point, I was like very committed to being a writer, specifically a TV writer. I moved to LA and I, you know, was like working you know, variety of jobs to kind of pay the rent, which was significantly cheaper back in 2011. And I ended up getting a job at a summer camp in LA, where I like returned to my Philly roots, because every summer, you know, summer break, I would work at a a summer camp. And, you know, this was like the one thing I knew I could do. Then I was, you know, just working with like 15 to 20 first graders and, you know, out, you know, swimming and, you know, playing sports. And, uh, you know, and it was a it was a great way to like, make some money, and not have to hate every second of the job. And one of my uh, camper's parents was a TV exec. And I remember she was like, oh, um, do you want to be a teacher? And I was like, no, I don't. Um, I want to write for television. She was like, well, send me your resume and, you know, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And, you know, a lot of people say that in Los Angeles.
0: A lot of overpromising, a lot of underdovering. Yeah, right. Exactly. You
4: know, and you don't get your hopes up. The following October, I was really getting ready, I think, to move back to PA after like three years of trying to, you know, make it as a as a writer. Uh, I got a phone call and she was like, Do you have, you know, can you go sit down with Dan Dworkin and JBD? They were a writing team that had just had their first show, Greenlit. Um, at this network, the El Rey Network, which is owned by Robert Rodriguez. And it was my first TV gig. I had no idea how to be a showrunner's assistant. I didn't know what that entailed. I was just so excited to have like a pinky toe in the door. And you sort of learn as you go. Where Cruel Intentions came from is when I got the showrunner's assistant job, I was pretty confident that like I was set for four to five years. I was like, they love the show. It's a new network. Eventually, you know, I'll get promoted to staff writer. I'll have my first episode. Like, I could visualize it. They renewed us for a second season. I took it upon myself to throw like a season two renewal party at a club (laughs) in Hollywood for like the cast and the crew. And then maybe like a week or two later, they canceled it after already renewing it. Which apparently happens more often than you think, which I wasn't aware of at the time. And in that moment, I was sort of realizing, like, what am I going to do now? I didn't have a resume outside of the opportunities that I had created for myself, which were short films. You know, I had more samples than I knew what to do with, but I had no representation. And I remember talking to Evan Blyweiss, who was one of the writers on the show I just said, I was like, you know, how do you how do you break in? Tell me the tricks like what what, what is it? The piece of advice that he gave me was it was so simple, but it was just do something that's going to make you stand out. Have something on your resume that's going to make you stand out among, you know, a pretty crowded field. There's so many writers. Everybody has a story to tell. You know, and my resume was like, I moved from Philly, I worked in radio, like I didn't really have anything on there that, you know, separated me from I think, all the other writers that I knew that were in the assistant game trying to break in. And I... Went to this uh, venue called the Rockwell Table and Stage, and I had seen a bunch of shows there. There's the For the Record crew. They would take one director and do a musical of like four or five of his movies. And they did Baz Luhrmann, they did Robert Zemeckis. I think they did Scorsese. So I had seen a lot of these kind of jukebox musicals, kind of you know mashed up with popular movies. And then I went to go see Scream, and I remember leaving there being the most inspired I had been in a very long time. I love the nineties. I just like, I'm very unapologetic about my love for that decade. I just went home and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write a musical. It was like, it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a musical. I had no idea what, how to, what it should look like, the format. Like I really had no idea. And I went home and it just so happened that cruel intentions, the edited for TV version was on and I sat down. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I just was instantly reminded why I love this movie. Yes, it's sexy. Yes, it's funny. But it really does sort of take you on a journey from the Upper East Side, at, you know, these sort of rich teens getting away with murder, not literal murder, but obviously like, you know, they had, it was like a no parenting household and really getting to watch Sebastian... Change as he falls in love with Annette. And then, of course, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar, I was a huge Buffy fan. Same here. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting to see her in a role that was such the opposite of Buffy um, really always stuck with me. I mean, of course, I think I saw Cruel Intentions at an age where I was too young to understand any of it. Like, it was like that naughty sleepover movie that you weren't supposed to be watching. I was probably 12 uh, when I saw it for the first time. but. I just remembered how much I loved it. It lent itself to the stage so well, probably because, you know, Roger Cumble, the writer-director, came from a theater background. So there's this theatrical quality to it. Of course, Dangerous Liaisons, the source material has been adapted and readapted many times. So there's something universal about the story. We just kind of like went from there. So I had this big idea that I didn't know what to do with it. I put a draft together. So many songs did not make the cut. I knew I wanted to use massive chunks of the soundtrack. The one thing about jukebox musicals is that our, these songs are not written for the story. So it was really important to me to find songs that would drive the narrative forward. And now, like all these years later, it's so, it's so I think it's so cool and interesting to go and see the show um, and see how the songs have sort of been absorbed by the story. And I've had people come up to me and be like, you know, they were watching the movie and expecting them to break into song, or mm-hmm. like they didn't hear. You know, Catherine sings "I'm the Only One" by Melissa Etheridge in Act One, and like it's like the, one of the first scenes right out the gate. And I think it's so amazing that we were able to find songs that really did kind of elevate the material as opposed to just feel like we were trying to like get the audience's attention.
0: Yeah, we were going back and forth initially when it came to Cruel Intentions because it, because as we mentioned earlier in the show, people in their 30s, like people who saw or 40s or older, just like saw when they saw the movie when it first came out, we would automatically think later of the song Colorblind that like to accompany this movie as like the premiere needle drop. Um, yeah. But right. I think it sounds like that needle has moved and bittersweet symphony that needle drop is more likely ha- it has to of time yeah to a greater extent than um colorblind no shade to colorblind
1: i will throw a ton <laughs> of <shade> to colorblind <laughs>
0: maybe a little shade i don't know i'm trying to keep <laughs> trying to keep it kind <laughs> well you know
4: that wasn't even um i mean i don't think roger even was going to use colorblind at first yeah. whereas i think Lindsay Rosen's the co-creator of the musical with me. And I remember when we were getting ready to go off Broadway uh, to New York and we were, you know, working with Eva Price, our incredible producer, and um, Janet Rich, who handled all of our music clearances. I was like, what are we going to do if we don't get Bittersweet Symphony or Colorblind? Or, you know, like we ended up getting the rights to everything except two songs that were originally in the show. We had no trouble getting the rights to Bittersweet Symphony.
0: I was going to ask how difficult because for the film, it was incredibly difficult to get the, to get Bittersweet
4: Symphony. You know, sometimes I think as many write any, any writer who will sit with you and tell you if they're writing with a specific song in mind, it becomes very hard to like find an alternate. And Roger wrote that sequence to this song. They tried a bunch of songs and ultimately you know, decided that it was worth the price tag to go and get this song. And when we were doing get doing the musical, I was like, you can't do cruel intentions the musical without no. Bittersweet Symphony. Like I so I was relieved. Like it was like a sigh of relief when we got the email that said like, it's cleared, we're good. And um I think now the rights have reverted back to Richard Ashcroft. Mm-hmm. Um but they at have, the time yeah. they were still with the Rolling Stone. Right. So it was not an easy song to get a hold of for the movie. And of course You know, when the musical went legit, um, you know, Lindsay and I had Colorblind and Bittersweet Symphony were like the two songs I think that we had the most concern about.
1: The other really interesting thing is, and we mentioned this in uh, the kind of the first segment of the show is it may have cost a million dollars to get this song for the movie, but I think that that million dollars was paid back. In the popular, like, I think that that movie was at least $1 million more popular thanks to its use of Bittersweet Symphony. And I want to know if you think the same thing about the show.
4: I definitely think we probably would have gotten some shit for doing Cruel Intentions without <laughs> Bittersweet Symphony. I just don't think it's possible. There's an episode of Riverdale in season two where Veronica sings Bittersweet Symphony with the Pussycats. And while they're trying to decide which song to sing, Veronica says, do you know Bittersweet Symphony from Cruel Intentions? It's not like Bittersweet (laughs) Symphony by the Verve. It's not Bittersweet (laughs) Symphony, you know, that samples the Rolling Stones. It's from Cruel Intentions. You know, that moment of Catherine being exposed on the steps of Manchester Prep, it all wraps up into like this beautiful epic ending with her, that single tear dropping down her cheek, with the car driving off into the distance. I think people expect it. And in the musical, we do sample a little bit of Bittersweet Symphony right off the top. So people know that it's coming Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we get to use the song in a slightly different way than the movie uses it because we're tying up storylines with it. Whereas at the end of the movie you have Catherine's However Dark the Cloud uh, eulogy. And then it's just the song for the rest of the movie to underscore these major moments. So There was never a version of the show that didn't have the song in it. The show always opened with Every You, Every Me, like the movie does by Placebo. Mm -hmm. And it always ended with Bittersweet Symphony and Colorblind was always there in the middle for the escalator scene. Although we never, we've yet to get like a real escalator for the show, unfortunately. (laughs) One day, maybe we've really tried to sort of mix the best of the nineties in with, you know, the most, the most, iconic songs from that soundtrack we also use love fool by the cardigans nice which has a very small appearance in the movie during the pool scene and we decided to sort of use that to our advantage so we even use one song that isn't on the soundtrack but is actually featured in the movie
0: i just want to say i'm fascinated that ultimately cruel intentions was the movie that a, was on TV, but B, the movie that you wanted to really run with to turn into a jukebox musical. And um, I say this as someone without too an over-familiarity in with the theater world, although I did go to a very theater-heavy college um, as well. I was not a theater major. I just observed the craft rather than participate. But from my vantage point, it seems like cruel intentions was so self-serious yes it had funny moments but it was very dark it was it was not uh she's all that it was not uh no. other movies with with bets uh, teenage bets at the uh uh fucking things bets. i hate about you fucking bet
4: what's she saying i'm a i'm a bet am i a fucking bet mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah it, written it was by not, m I just found that out recently <laughs> as like a ghostwriter,
1: right? Yeah, he ghostwrote she's mm-hmm. all that, which is incredible, incredible work.
0: And um there were a lot of a lot of teen comedies in the late nineties, maybe I guess early two thousands you could also say that um had they, they were mostly rated PG thirteen. They were not as overly sexual. Um and I wonder like When you wrote your proposal, when you put it all together, did you have like, did anyone push back and say this will never work? Or did you or did it was it mostly this is just so crazy it might work?
4: The whole thing was like a real lightning in the bottle experience. And I I really have to sort of pay it forward to Lindsay Rosen who co-created this with me and directed the show. Uh, I remember we sat down, we went to Arts Deli in Studio City together, and that's where we sort of sat down and met for the first time. And I knew I didn't want to direct the show. I knew that I didn't have enough experience to put a show up on its feet. And our mutual friend, Jonah Platt, linked us up, and we really built it up from the ground together. You know, she had a vision for it in a way that allowed me to focus on the music and the story we were telling. And we, we we sort of really took what was kind of like an unpolished idea. Although, I mean, I had a script. It was, uh, you know, I'll admit like the first draft was a mess. But together, we were able to create something that I think is a love letter to the movie. There were definitely some people that in the beginning didn't think it was going to work or sell or that people are going to come. But, we were comp- we only we only had 3 dates on the calendar right out the gate and they were conception performances so we didn't have an intermission a bunch of the songs that are in the show now are, weren't in the show at all and we really had no tech so it was like just like house lights you know basic sound mixing you know a few sound effects that I'm pretty sure I was running from the tech booth wore many hats during the first run of the show i remember You know, someone at the venue was like, yeah, this is never going to work. We were sold out before we even did the first show. We were oversold. Like, there were seats of people were literally sitting in seats that were, like, up against the wall. So there were definitely more people in the venue than, like, you know, was legally allowed. That night that we opened for the first time, it was uh, February of 2015, you know, the venue came and said, like, how would you like to do April? You know, and then April turned into May, and May turned into June, and June turned into July. Mind you, this entire time, we did not have the rights to the movie. When we opened the show, we got an email that Roger Cumble was coming, and he was coming with Neil Moritz, the producer, and with uh, their, with their lawyer. And <laughs> I remember I was like, who's like a friend of theirs? And I remember I was like standing with Lindsay, and I was like, well, this has been fun while it lasted, guys. <laughs> like, you know, we did three nights, and but Roger was so gracious. You know, I could just tell that he was having such an amazing time and after that he became our biggest champion and now he's actually co-creator of the musical and you know he was with us in new york uh for a bit before we opened we got to know him i learned so much from him
0: there's something very waiting for guffman about this story by the way like you're waiting for the person. I mean, not that you knew he was definitely coming, but it sounds like like Cumble's involvement is kind of what brought you to, uh, level, like to level up and then you go to Broadway and <laughs> he's your Guffman.
4: Well, he definitely, I mean, so there was a, um, the, the three female leads came to see the show together in May of 2015. They came with Roger and his wife for his birthday. I still remember, I will never forget When, when Lindsay called me to tell me that she had just gotten an email from Sarah saying, like, that Sarah had already seen the show. Sarah came. earlier in the run. And she was like, I'd love to come back with Reese and Selma. And like, Lindsay had to pull over and be like, is this real? (laughs) Is this like a real email that I just received? And I was like at work and I was like, no way. Oh my God. There was a moment before the ladies came that Lindsay and I looked at each other and we sort of knew that there was something here. I don't think we ever really knew that it was going to become like the biggest gift I could have ever hoped for. I thought this was going to be like a small thing I put on my resume and, you know, maybe moved on and did some other things. You know, we went from the Rockwell to doing like a small pop-up in Hollywood. And then we went off Broadway and there's been a tour and um, it went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we just finished our first ever tour in Australia and they loved it. It was like, you know, it's been such a wild ride. Sometimes it doesn't feel real because we were really all just theater lovers and music lovers and 90s lovers just like kind of like hopping into the trenches to kind of put up this sort of uh, guerrilla show together. There was a lot of theater magic happening. And I think once people saw it and they realized it had all of these things working for it you know not just not you know you didn't have to know cruel intentions to come and love the musical you know you could just know the music and people were drinking and singing along as entertainment weekly i think said it was like the ultimate 90s night out
0: i love that point that it it sort of stands on its own apart from the movie even and and because even if you didn't see the movie you still Likely, regardless, depending on your age, witness the '90s and yes. listen to the radio. Speaking
1: as someone who has gone to see some of these parodies at the Rock, the I, I'm not lumping Cruel Intentions in with the other parodies. The Rockwell. It seems as though Cruel Intentions is never winking at the audience to say, like. We know that we're being silly. We know that this is kind of a shitty movie. Like the Scream one very clearly does. And the and the Jurassic Park one does that I saw. And I feel like that is the key to this show. One of the keys to this show's success is it comes from a deep place of love. And you're not ever making fun of the thing that you love.
4: I'm going to quote Lindsay again. She She once said... When we were, I think it was after a show at One Night, she was like, you know, it's easy, it's easy to say that you don't like something, right? Like you can easily write something off. But it's much harder to like stand proud and profess that you love something completely. We just love this movie because there already is this comedy element to the film, you know, mostly, you know, in the role of Cecile who plays, you know, the sort of comedic relief and Selma does that, you know, it's so incredible that we didn't feel like we needed to, you know, wink at the audience or to poke fun at the material. We thought that there was a really great emotional roller coaster, you know, that kind of, you know, runs through the heart of the movie and, you know, act one is sort of where we, you know, set up the bet. You know, and with the music, the music choices, you know, that's sort of where you're getting some of the laughs from the audience. Like when you hear the opening chords of "Genie in a Bottle, Mm. you know, we always got a laugh from the audience. We used to have I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys in the show. Um, It's no longer in the show. But whenever those opening chords, you know, that that those first lyrics would come out, you would get a response from the audience. So we didn't feel like we needed that extra parody element to make people enjoy the show. And by the time you get to act two, we start, you know, with Cecile and Catherine, you know, after um, Sebastian goes down on her and, you know, she's like struggling with these feelings and, you know, isn't really sure what happened. And she sings the sign by Ace of Base when Catherine tells her that she had an orgasm for the first time. <laughs> and so we're getting, we're getting humor in those moments. And I think it allowed us to have the more emotional moments And have the audience go there with us so that even if you might laugh a little bit when you hear the opening chords of Foolish Games, which Annette sings, you know, towards the end of Act Two, the emotion of the performance in the scene, we play it straight because we've sort of earned that throughout the show. Of course, there are moments, you know, there are nights where the audience is rowdier than usual, Mm -hmm. had a few more drinks than usual, singing along and stuff like that, um, which we love. But I think for the most part, I didn't want to write a parody. I don't think the movie needed a parody. I think the movie could be a stage musical with all of its, you know, themes that go all the way back to Dangerous Liaisons, you know, that we could do that straight up without having to, you know, Just to wink at the audience, like Aviv said.
1: Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to Jordan Ross Schindler for sitting down and talking to us. Hopefully, we get to see the Cruel Intentions musical on stage again someday.
0: Yeah, I think if we've learned anything about Cruel Intentions, the franchise, it's that it's never over. It's never over. There's always
1: a new TV movie to be seen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this bittersweet episode of Sync.
1: And like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating and review all the stuff that everyone tells you at the end of podcasts and tune in next week when we talk about another needle drop that makes your 90s heart flutter. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein.
0: I'm Rachel Brodsky.
1: Saying, I can change.